Sarah Gavigan is the CEO of Otaku Ramen in Nashville, Tennessee. After 20 years uh, in the entertainment industry in Los Angeles, she moved back home and started a ramen pop-up. That eventually led to a series of brick-and-mortar locations. Today, we talk about the tools aspiring restaurateurs need, the best way to think of marketing, the secrets behind using pop-ups to establish your brand, and so much more. I adore this woman, and I had such a blast talking with her. Don't go anywhere. There's an old saying goes something like this. You'll only find three kinds of people in the world. Those who see, those who will never see, and those who can see when shown. This is Restaurant Strategy, a marketing podcast for anyone who's looking. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. My name is Chip Close and this is Restaurant Strategy, a weekly podcast dedicated entirely to the restaurant industry. Now my goal is to take complicated marketing concepts and make them both understandable and actionable. And then I want to find ways to incorporate what we've learned and and help you put it into your day-to-day operations. I want you to change the mindset you have about your business and I want to challenge some of your assumptions you have about this industry. By the end of each episode, we come up with a few key insights, and then we always finish up with an assignment. I always try to leave you with a short, actionable task, something you can do right away to start implementing some of the ideas we talk about here on the show, because as I always say, information is only as valuable as the action it inspires. Now, today's episode is brought to you by Ovation, the actionable guest feedback platform that actually drives revenue. Are you frustrated by unfair online reviews? Are you sick of not having control over uh, the delivery experience of your guests? Are you ready to get actionable feedback and drive revenue? Restaurants from coast to coast trust Ovation to do just that. Recently voted the number one guest feedback platform in a nationwide restaurant owner survey, Ovation uses an SMS-based survey as a digital touchpoint that has redefined guest feedback. So if the experience was great, your guests leave an online review and then are automatically invited back or urged to convert from third party to first party ordering. If it wasn't great, you're immediately notified so your team can resolve issues in real time. Get more feedback, more reviews, and more revenue with Ovation. Visit ovationup.com chip. That's ovationup.com slash C-H-I-P to get 2,000 free text messages. And don't worry, that link is in the show notes. Now, a friendly reminder that Restaurant Strategy is on Patreon. The community continues to grow. There are four different tiers of membership. Each one has a bunch of perks included, but each level grants you access to our new private podcast, The Daily Special. New episodes drop every weekday, short, snackable content, Monday through Friday, no longer than five minutes each. Visit patreon.com slash restaurant strategy. Again, that link is also in the show notes. So my guest on today's show is Sarah Gavigan, chef owner and CEO of Otaku Ramen in Nashville. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. Okay, so people say you are you are the one responsible for bringing ramen to Nashville, uh, and I want to get to all of that. I promise we will. Yeah. Uh, but I do want to go back a little bit to give the audience some context because you grew up in Nashville, but mm-hmm. then you went away for school and you spent like twenty years in LA, but not working in restaurants. You were working in 
the music industry. I wonder if we could start there. Talk to me about that. What exactly were you doing out there? Yeah, so um, I went to school in Arizona and then I went straight out to California. California just called me and I got into the film industry and that led me into um, really what's called short form production. At the time, it was commercials and music videos. And I kind of worked my way through that industry in a handful of different ways, but ostensibly for the longest time, I was an agent and I represented cinematographers and set designers. And I had my own agency and then I sold that when I was 30. And I started another company that represented independent record labels for licensing in commercials. And that was um, that was a really special time. I and mean, we started the company in 99 and it was kind of right as Moby had put like his first song in a commercial. And so most of the record industry was like, no way would I ever put my music in a commercial. And then the smart ones were like, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. So it was a really special time. I got to write a lot of really big checks to a lot of really small artists. I got to present to Steve Jobs. I got to do a lot of really fun stuff. And um, in 2008, um, I had my daughter in 2003 and Spotify arrived and all of a sudden everyone could be a music supervisor. So I just kind of made a conscious decision. Um, it felt out of the blue to my team, unfortunately, but to me it was not. And I closed my company in 2008, just about a hot minute before the economy hit the tanker. <laughs> and um, so it was it was good timing. And so my husband and I decided that we were going to move uh, back to Tennessee because that's where my family is and that's where I'm from. And Nashville was just kind of on the come, you know, it was 2010 when we moved here. But my my career in Los Angeles was like many careers in entertainment, um, very fast paced and very uh, emotional. Right. There was a lot of emotion. And so there were a lot of days where I would simply just check out and go get a bowl of ramen. And there was a Japanese grocery store up the street from me in Venice called Mitswa. And I watched it being built and I thought, oh, my God, this is this is going to be amazing. Didn't really understand how amazing, how much that grocery store was going to change my life. But the food court was really kind of where I started. And I just like worked my way through the food court. And then I started working my way through the grocery aisles. And, you know, Los Angeles is, I think, the third largest Japanese population outside Japan yeah, in the world. Yeah. And so there's four distinct Japanese neighborhoods in um, Southern California, you know, in the Los, greater Los Angeles area. So there's a lot of territory to explore. And, you know, I before I even went to Japan, I felt like I had spent a lot of time in Japan because these were, you know, before Japanese food had really expanded out of just sushi, right? Um, it was, there was everything there. I mean, you could go to a teppanyaki restaurant and have a konomiyaki. You could go have a yak yakitori. You could go to a sukiyaki restaurant. I mean, all of that is in Los Angeles. And so when I would just, ramen was my respite, really. Like, bad day, get a bowl of ramen, feel happy. That was pretty much the formula. So, and that was, was that the first time that food really sparked something in you? Because, or, or, or was food always a part of your life? I want to make sure to kind of touch on this. Yeah. I mean, how does, 
how does food re- relate in all of this to your life? Because music industry, entertainment, you know, agency, that, that I don't understand where food comes in. So explain, yeah. or was it really just through this, you know, through these Japanese grocery stores and the markets and the food courts and all that? Explain that to me. Food has been the gateway to emotions for me for my entire life. I come from a Sicilian family. The, you know, the matriarchs of my family were always in the kitchen and I didn't show any interest in cooking other than just being with them in the kitchen until I was in college. And the first dish that I ever decided to make was my Nona's um, homemade manicotti with crepes. And it was, um, let's see, it would have been like 89. (laughs) And um, we were on the phone for two and a half hours. She had to teach me how to make it just, over the Just phone. figuring it yeah. out. But when I saw the, the reactions of my friends, when I saw how happy my friends were and like the bliss that it gave them to have this food, I was hooked. I was like, I want to cook. I want to cook for people. So I was an obsessed home cook. Okay. And I had, I've had kind of before the ramen obsession, my husband built me um, an Adobe oven. So we had an Adobe wood-fired oven. We've built four of them now in different homes that we've had. But our first one was in our little little bungalow in Venice Beach. And I mean, it was like, you know, when you make these, these ovens, you're basically doing it the way they did it in like ancient times, right? You have a pedestal, then you've got the wet sand to represent the interior of the dome. And then you've got the mud on the outside. Well, we couldn't find plaster because you have to use natural plaster. It has to be able to breathe. So he didn't do that part. So it just looked like a big hairy beast <laughs> in the backyard because it had, you know, all this hay coming out of it. But damn, if we didn't have so much fun on that thing and we had the most epic backyard parties, I had no clue what I was doing, but it didn't matter because it was all an exploration. And that's how I fell in love with cooking. Okay. You know, that like, and and I would work my ass off. I worked 80 hours a week in the industry, but still, if, you know, other than being with my child and taking care of my family, my number one hobby was always cooking. Like that was always the question. What are we going to make this weekend? Where am I going to get it? I mean, and I had friends that were, when I started to have friends that were in the industry, in the restaurant industry, that's really when I kind of started to think, God. I want to do this, but I have absolutely no idea how I'm going to pull this off. Did you did you have that thought when you were even back in L.A.? I did. I have this friend named Jennifer. She was um, she like established Chef's Warehouse on the West Coast. She's tiny little blonde. And she used to take me with her to restaurants that she had to call on. And I will never forget. Like she's like, just stay behind me and don't talk. We're at Wolf, we're at Spago and we walk into the kitchen and she starts berating the chef like, chef, why aren't you using my chocolate? What's up with that cheese? That's not my cheese. Like she's just a pistol, you know, and I just loved the fast pace of it because guess what? It mimics a film set. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> 80 hour weeks and fast pace. <laughs> I yeah, certainly I mean, know that 20 years in the restaurant industry. And, and so the correlation between personalities was really obvious for me, like, in, in a restaurant, you have a director, a producer, a cinematographer. It's all there. Yep. It's all the same thing. Yeah, it's all collaboration. And yeah, so it, it did kind of feel natural to me. But, you know, at that time, I never imagined that I would open restaurants. That wasn't really, like, 
part of my thinking okay, at all. So then explain to me this transition. I, I'll, I'll always uh, say this often in interviews. Uh, my brother is notorious. Uh, he's out in L.A. He's a, a screenwriter, uh, an aspiring mm-hmm. screenwriter. And, you know, you listen to podcast interviews, you listen to whatever, and uh, you sit down with a, a successful screenwriter and I say, well, I was doing this thing. And then, you know, one thing led to another. And then uh, that's when I get to my big break. And my brother is famous for saying, no, 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 no. I want to know what was the one thing that led to another when they say yada, 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 or blah, blah, blah. Like, no, that's the, the minutiae. Those are the details that I want to mm-hmm. get into. And, and so I want to make sure not to, not to skate over some of that stuff. Yeah. So you closed down your company in 2008. The timing is good. It's mm-hmm. another year and a half or so, two years before. We made the move in 2010. So then you moved back to Nashville in 2010. What was, now what was that about? Like what were, were you running from something or running to something? Yeah, very good question. Um, it, first of all, I love living here now, but let's be clear. I left the South yep. when I was 13 years old. And I said to my parents, I want to go away to school. I want to go away to high school. Cause I don't want to live here. I don't want to live in the South. I mean, I was Sicilian and I didn't even have any connection to my Sicilian heritage, really, other than like my grandparents who already lived in Florida. And, you know, they had given up a lot of their Sicilianness, you know, in those generations. Yeah. So um, I just knew I was different and I didn't want to be in an environment that made me feel that way anymore. And so I, I left the South in a bang. So coming back was like never on the menu. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and um, it was one of those moments where it was like, it's time to come home, Sarah, you know? And um, it felt like a consolation prize. It felt like I had washed out. It felt like I had lost and I had to go home. Hmm. And it pissed me off. Yeah. And so that combined with deeply, deeply underestimating the emotional connections to your network of friends that you've built over 20 years and kind of starting over in a place that you already have history in, yeah. you already know people in, but they know you as a 13 year old. Yeah. They don't know you as an adult, right? So there was just a lot of baggage in that. And my daughter was ironically struggling the exact same way I did at the same age, just feeling rejected and misunderstood because she wasn't a cute little obedient Southern girl. She was this wild, feral California kid, <laughs> you know? And so we were kind of grieving together. You know, my husband, we had kind of switched roles. Um, My husband and I both owned our own companies. And when my daughter was young, he was kind of the one that was home more than I was because my my industry pulled me in more directions. But he ended up going to work for my father and I ended up staying home with our daughter for the first time. I had never been a stay-at-home mom. And um, man, As they say in the South, I almost dropped my basket. (laughs) I really almost went crazy. Yeah. And I just felt like I didn't belong here. So I was really yearning for something to make me happy. And I was like, I just fucking want a bowl of ramen. (laughs) That's all I wanted. Yeah. And so I said, you know, I can see that there is an ungodly amount of opportunity here and I have absolutely no idea how I'm going to get from point A to point B, but all right, I'm going to go buy some bones and see if I can figure this out. Having no real true culinary experience, hadn't worked a day in a kitchen, in a professional kitchen. And it was daunting, but at the same time, it was riveting, right? I mean, nothing is more intoxicating than than the beginning of a project, right? Nothing. 
And so it was that pure intoxication that drove me. But also there was something else kind of going on. Nashville was at the beginning of a renaissance and there were just people there to help me. I, I mean, it was it was one of those situations like I had been talking about it. I had been making it at home. And first of all, there was no cookbook. There was nothing written in Japanese or English. I would have to um, literally like watch YouTube videos of the the ramen competitions and be like, what is in that bowl? What are they putting in that bowl? And like trying to figure it all out like a puzzle. Yeah. But it was my focus. And so eventually you do something enough, you start to learn, right? Repetition. And then I started to meet people in the industry and um, a couple of people kind of pushed me out of the nest. And there was one chef in particular, I never really worked for him, but as you say in the industry, he is my chef. Like he is the first person that I called chef. Yeah. And I may not have worked side by side with him every day, but he played that role for me and like, you can do this, you should do this. And he came up, my friend brought him over to my house. His name's Eric Anderson. He's an incredible chef. He was the opening chef of Catbird Seat and, um, you know, Michelin star level chef. And he said, you know, he eats this extremely subpar bowl of ramen that I have served him. And he's like, you should, you should do this. You should, you know, serve people this ramen. I'm like, I, really, you think? He's like, yeah, you should do this. And so he tweeted it. He sent me a text after he left my house and he said, do you mind if I tweet this on the catbird seat? And I was like, <laughs> and I remember sitting on my couch going, this is the moment right here. This is it. So then I'm going to look back on this and say, this was the moment. Yeah. So then, okay. So then tell me, so you're in Nashville. You say, I just want ramen. There's no ramen. So you have mm -hmm. to figure out how to make ramen. You go mm -hmm. to the effort of figuring out how to, how to make ramen, and then you start going, well, okay, th this isn't bad, or I'm getting better at this, or I'm starting to figure this out. What was that, what was that moment, if you can think of, when you said, I, I think this is good enough to make people? W was it this, or were you <laughs> starting to... No, it wasn't a good enough moment. It was definitely, I, I would say that I was serving extremely subpar ramen for the first two years. Okay, let's stop for one second because I want to know. Uh, so tell me what ramen is. Um, I don't like ramen. I don't know what ramen is. Tell me what ramen is. So ramen is a combination of two things, really. A broth made a certain way and a noodle made a certain way. So the noodle is an, what's called an alkaline noodle. It doesn't have any egg in it, really. Um it has what's called uh, kansui is what the Japanese call it. It's sodium bicarbonate, kind of like baking soda. And so it's a very low hydration noodle that has to go under very high pressure. That's why it's very difficult to make it at home um, in order to give it this very unique chew and bite that can also hold up in a scalding hot broth. And it has the ability to take in flavor and release starch at the same time that adds to the whole experience of the ramen bowl. So a ramen bowl is, I think, the um, kind of the rock star example of umami. Yeah. And um, it is, you know, it's Japanese food, definitely. But it is on, I think, the much like punch you in the face level. Like there's not a lot of punch you in the face food in Japan. They don't like spice. 
and they um you know they don't use condiments like mustard and ketchup and things like that unless it's kind of a western style food they call that wafu but ramen is the one place where they will bang you over the head and so it's a it's a, a complete canvas like there are rules and many people debate those rules what the rules are of ramen but to me a bowl of ramen is a, an alkaline noodle a bone broth a very salty tare which is the seasoning um whatever toppings that you choose and an aroma oil okay so whatever those things are they have to be within balance to create that that moment that a bowl can give you where it's like literally revelatory and that umami hits you in such a way that it's like it's a dopamine hit it scientifically makes you happy like they've proven that umami sets off receptors in the brain that activates dopamine and so you know you could go into that conversation for hours well, i feel like but tell me uh, for the listeners who don't know uh explain umami so I used to think that umami was something that like only great chefs could conjure. It's actually just science and it's really, really simple. There's five amino acids present in food. And the most popular one that we know is glutamates, right? Monosodium glutamate, MSG. And glutamates are present in everything from Parmesan cheese to tomatoes to kombu to the famous uh, bonito, which is a a fish that they preserve and shave and use. So if you if you think about taking bonito, kombu, and um, shiitake mushrooms, each one of them have a different amino acid. You bring them together, you create umami. And that umami is deceiving to Americans because Americans think that everything has to have a flavor. But umami is not a flavor. Umami is a reaction. And so... I didn't, you know, going back to this moment where I was connected to ramen in the way that it made me happy, I didn't really understand what that was. I knew what it did to me, but I didn't know why. And so that's been a really big part of the journey and a big, a fun part of the journey um, is understanding that there, there, there is a, there's a responsibility in serving this food that if you choose to make ramen for a living, it is your responsibility to provide umami. If you're gonna do it, do it well. Um, because if you don't, then you're not gonna give the person that emotional connection. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, that's the best description uh, and explanation of ramen that I've ever heard, <laughs> and I'm so glad it exists now on this show. Um, before we started uh, hitting record, we were talking about uh, how a lot of people uh, take the back door or the side door uh, into the industry. I was certainly like that. Um, but what I think is more unique, and I've had the great privilege of interviewing a bunch of people on this show um, who didn't just take the side door or the back door, but made a very deliberate decision uh, in a in a second in a second act of their of their life uh, to, to walk right in the front door, which is really what you did. Uh, Bob and Kate Carpenter have Sunnyside Kitchen out in Escondido, California. Uh, I interviewed them on the show. Uh, they certainly fit the bill. Uh, a guy named David Stockwell, who I've become friendly with, he uh, owns a restaurant called Fawn here in Prospect Heights, Brooklyn. Uh, he did that. He had a, a very important job at a, at a very uh, a big deal uh, architecture firm, uh, was part of uh, the uh, Studio Liebskin, uh, so part of the... Uh, the World Trade Center, um, mm. you know, remodeling and all that. And he basically Maybe. said, 
that's it. I'm done here. And I think the thing, um, the thing they all share in common, and I'm hearing it now as you're talking, is this um, this drive to keep learning, this curiosity, um, this this thing of like, I already did that. I know everything I need to know about that. Like I, I've I've gotten as much out of out of that as I can. Mm-hmm. But I really love this, and I don't know that much about it. And um, certainly, David uh, kind of echoed that in in when I interviewed him, where he's like. I did architecture my whole life. I knew everything about architecture. I knew, like, and I worked at a very high level, I, I, but I'm just going to keep doing that over and over again. And it was no longer interesting to me. And how can I, you know, take the structures and precepts of architecture um, to structure an experience, to structure a neighborhood restaurant um, that, that can be of the community and, and all of that. And and I'm hearing you say all of that too, that it was the curiosity, the the, the drive to uh, to learn that that really uh, that sucked you in so so deeply so so wholly uh, from the beginning is that is that fair to say? I was looking for connection. Yeah, I was looking to somehow connect to my community, my new community. I wanted to bring something that I felt could make people happy, and really, I don't think I truly knew that at the time. It was kind of a, just a, a response, right? It was what I needed. So naturally that's what I was rotating towards. But now in my eighth year of doing this, I can tell you that this is all about connecting with people. You do this because you want, you you want to provide for people in some way. I mean, listen, some people build and own restaurants and are extremely successful. They don't give a shit about connecting with people. I care a lot about it. And um, now much of the work that I do now is on my own, ironically. (laughs) Uh, um, But at the same time, I'm always thinking about how can my product, how can my business improve people's lives? Yeah, and and that gets to the the marketing conversation that I wanna get to, because I wanna understand how you think about that. But if there's anything that's been clear um, throughout this pandemic, and we're recording this in March 2021, um, uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but it's impossible to ignore Mm -hmm. it. But if there's anything that's become really obvious over the course of uh, this pandemic, it's that like people crave connection and that's something um, that we give people that we entertain people we 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 welcome them in we give them a, a place to uh, to engage to connect um, to have dates to close business deals to um, to blow off steam you know on a lunch break and you know we're not we're not just feeding them we're, we're giving them something uh, much more than that which um, goes to the the deeper ends of, uh, of marketing which again we will get to um okay so you're making subpar uh ramen um, you give it to your friend, he posts about it, um, and you said, oh my God, this is the moment. This is when this thing is born. What do you mean by that? And what happened after that? So what happened after that is that I set my first date for my first pop-up and it was in a restaurant called, um, 12 South Tap Room, right down the street from my house. And Eric helped me find a couple of cooks to come help work with me. And they had far more experience than I did in prepping for 300 bowls, you know. And so we, I I mean, looking back on it now, it was just like pure ridiculousness. But I I was, it was blind ambition. I mean, I really like, I had nothing to lose. Start before you're ready. Right. Start before you're ready. And so we did, um, I think it was two seatings, 75 seats um, or 75 tickets per, per seating. And it was a three course meal. So it was like a little app and then a bowl of ramen and dessert. 
And it was just it was just so precious looking back on it now, just how focused and dedicated everyone was because, you know, nothing like this had ever happened in Nashville. A pop up. What? Yeah. What is that? And a pop up. I was basically the producer. I just produced it and I knew how to do that. Yep. That I could do all day long. So it was fun and I and I found a merry band of people to come along with me. And so we started doing pop-ups all over the city and that's how we started to grow. There is no better marketing than word of mouth, like a, like a recommendation from a, a friend or a family member. The Restaurant Funnel sales system is built with that principle in mind, guaranteed to deliver new guests to your restaurant. They accelerate that traditional word of mouth process, utilizing both paid and organic channels. Restaurant Funnel will help you generate leads, will help you turn those leads into contacts, and then convert those contacts into actual guests that will rave about their experience. Through engaging, personalized, and measurable communications, those guests are nurtured into becoming super fans. To get started, they offer a free marketing report card for your business. Visit restaurantfunnel.com slash chip to learn more. And of course, that link is also in the show notes. Okay, so you do the first pop-up. It went well. You filled it? Sold out. Sold out. Okay. Um, that led to other ones. How did you how did you sell that first one out? How did you how'd you sell tickets? How how'd you how'd you get the place packed? Twitter, friends. I mean, it was just the city was so hungry, literally and figuratively. Yeah. Okay. So you kept going on. How frequently were you doing these pop-ups and for how long did that go on? Well, I mean, that was kind of the beauty of it, right? I could stop and start at will. Uh, you know, I still had a daughter and a life and all of those things that I had to manage as well. Um, I would do, I did a, a bunch of one-offs for a couple of years and then I committed, I found a commercial kitchen to work out of and I brought on a team and I committed to a more regular schedule at the farmer's market. And, and then it became clear that we had to make a bigger move if we wanted to keep going with this. And so... My commercial kitchen is in this really weird old building in the heart of East Nashville. And it was like the administrative building of an old hospital. And it's like, it's so weird. And it's on the second floor. Um, the boys over the years have all pontificated if maybe it was the morgue. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the guy that owned this crazy building at the time had built out you know, extended on this kitchen or built this kitchen. We don't know um, because there's no plans, original plans for the building. And um, with a, it was a 5,000 square foot rep sports bar on the top, on the second floor of an administrative mini mall in East Nashville. Perfect. For four of his nine sons to run. Perfect. Okay. So it didn't make it. And um, I was the lucky benefactor to get this kitchen. I bought out the entire kitchen for $10,000. It was a, a 2,000 square foot kitchen with three walk-ins. Okay. And the freezer walk-in, we are convinced, is actually the inside of a refrigerated truck. <laughs> so there was a dining room and it was dormant for a while. And then a new guy bought the building and he came to me and was like, hey, let's do something. And I was like, okay, what do you want to do? And so he backed us and we put together kind of a permanent pop-up restaurant called Pop. And 
that was me kind of dipping my toe into operations, but not really ready to be a ramen shop full time. Um, I just, it felt like a mitigated risk to me. You know, I didn't have to sink a bunch of capital. I got to be in East Nashville. I, you know, a lot of, it checked a lot of boxes. And on top of that, while we were running the ramen shop during the weekdays, um, sometimes on the weekends, we would have guest chefs come in. And that was really, really amazing for me and hopefully for Nashville as well. I got Dominique Crin to cook in that cranky ass kitchen. It's <laughs> amazing. And to this day, it is one of my absolute favorite days that I've ever had. And a bunch of um, cooks came in and staged. And I mean, she's magical on so, yeah. so many levels. And, and so it was, it was a great time because, it, it, you know, everybody said yes. Everyone wanted to come to Nashville. So it was really easy to get people to come. And, and I mean, listen, I was a talent agent. I know how to talk people into things. How do you talk so people I, into things then? I used all my skills. And, and I threw these events and we just had a ton of fun. And I really got to see like so many different t- styles of service. And, you know, we worked with Andy Ricker. We worked with just so many fun people. Zach Palacio, the list goes on and on. Yeah. And we, I mean, we threw these crazy, wild, artsy dinners. Like for Zach Palacio's dinner, there was a, because he he's in, his place was called Fish and Game. And in the Hudson Valley, there was a place down the street that had like hot, super high-end taxidermy. So we covered the entire place in taxidermy. Perfect, Zach's. We really had a lot. We got really creative. It was like my real artsy boho moment. Yeah, you know? Zach's super, uh, uh, super talented. Before uh, before fishing game, he of course had Fatty Crab. In, oh my god, I love that in the city. Yeah, in in New York, which uh, I used to stand in line. So when I worked in advertising and I was an agent, and I used to have to do sales and like convince creative directors to use me on their projects, I was going back and forth to New York and LA all the time. And I discovered Fatty Crab in the very beginning, and I used to spiff the girl at the door so that I could always get a place in line. Yeah. So when I came to town, my kind of my secret sauce as an agent was that I knew where all the cool shit was, yeah. and I stayed on top of it. In New York, I had the first phone number for Milk and Honey. Yeah. I had like I, I just figured it out, and that was kind of my side hobby, and that's where I would spend my money on my clients is taking them to these cool places. And still to this day, one of my fra- my very favorite creative directors, he's actually, he's so brilliant. He's actually um, the global creative director for Apple now. And I took him to Fatty Crab, but it was a genius strategy, if I say so myself, because I had him stuck in line with me for an hour and a half. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, so, you know, you can get a lot out of people. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so... <laughs> You start with pop-ups, um, you eventually move into this commercial kitchen, you start doing more regular pop-ups at this place, then becomes pop, um, and then you start hosting pop-ups with other chefs, you start bringing them in. I guess I want to pause the story here and talk about pop-ups for just a second, yeah. um, because it was a it was a really big deal five years ago, six years ago, and everyone thought, oh, this is going to be the future, and, and I don't think, at least here in New York, it never quite, uh, it felt like it never quite arrived. Um, mm. not, not in the way that I think a lot of people expected it to, um, what do you think about it and how do you think about it in the future? I'm a big proponent of it. Um, I think that it is the best move a young aspiring restaurant owner can make is to test their concept. One of the biggest secrets of our success is that by the time we opened our first true brick and mortar, we had an obsessive fan base. 
And there was no waiting time to wait to build the business. I built the business without having to sink a million dollars into it. And I think, you know, it's interesting you say that about New York. You're not the only person that has said that. I think the barrier to entry in New York is too high. And no one's going to give up their kitchen because the rent is so high, you've got to squeeze every dollar, Yep. right? But in places that are trying to build emerging food cultures, it's really prevalent. And, and in... Um, in COVID here in Nashville, there's a whole new set of players. It's amazing to see all these, there's like a whole Mexican food revolution happening in Nashville right now. And so there's all there's a whole new amazing group of young entrepreneurs in the food business that are doing pop-ups here in Nashville and being very successful with it. And you know, like to go pop-ups are even different, right? Like even, even easier to execute. I mean, you don't get the touch, you don't get to be with people, you don't get to experience them having your food. Mm -hmm. But I think that being a pop-up gives you so many of the skills that you need to survive in the industry. And, you know, if you don't have a hold on who you are and what you're doing and what you're really truly providing for people, then you won't make it. And this forces you to go through that process. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's really interesting. It's that idea of you know proof of concept, figuring it out, you know what it is, and it gives you the chance to figure that out. Um, on a lower, you know, with a, again, you know, managing your risk, you can figure that out as you go. You can, you can build the plane as you're taking off and tweak it and let it evolve. I think there's not enough, uh, we don't talk enough about, uh, an evolution of a restaurant. And again, I, I live here in New York city. I've worked here for 18 years and restaurants get reviewed in the first three months, six months mm. and, 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 you know, make it or break it. And, you know, millions of dollars go into this. And so it's almost got to come out, right? It's got to be born as this fully fleshed out idea um, that the, that it all knows, that it knows what it is. It knows, you know, what it wants to be. It knows how it wants to operate. And I don't think um, if you ever go back and, and look at any of the great, you know, restaurateurs, any of the great brands, they've they've developed, they've, they've failed, they've figured out what it is they want. I mean, you know, French Laundry was famously uh, was famously empty for the first two years, right? And they just kept figuring out who they were and what they wanted to do. I worked at Kraft with uh, Tom Colicchio here, and they opened in 2001, and it was a very messy concept. It was well executed. Uh, he knew what he was doing. He had a great team around him, but it was a messy concept. By the time I got there in 2000, I guess 2006, 2007, they had figured out what they wanted to be. And the first page of the... Um, of the service manual said, uh, think of it like uh, Thanksgiving dinner every night of the week. You know, that's how they described the family style dining, right? That, that, and it really wove into like, that tells you everything you need to know about that restaurant that, you know, and, and Tom's philosophy about it was that, you know, when people are trying to close a business deal, there's, there's an intimacy that's, um, that's created when you, we say, hey, can you pass the spinach? Hey, can you pass the duck? Can you, when you're literally sharing plates and scooping things onto other people's places. But that didn't emerge in 2001 when they opened. Um, it, it had to evolve to become that and for them to, um, to know that. And I think pop-ups give you the opportunity to figure that out as you, um, as you put it together. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, uh, the pressure can be crushing, you know? And um, if you don't, I, I, I also feel like if if I had started this business when I was 25, I wouldn't have made it. Why? Why do you say that? I, did, I, I needed the lifetime of skills that I had coming into it. That has been a big piece. Like 
I had mileage. I had instincts. I, I trusted my instincts. I had already failed. I had already succeeded in other in other areas. So I wasn't. I was searching for myself, but I wasn't. I I knew what my capabilities were. My capabilities were well developed, and of course, I've developed even more capabilities. <laughs> but you know, when you're when you're forty years old and you've been working since you were seventeen, let's hope that you you have enough mileage to know where your skills lie. Yeah. You know? So, you know, one of the things that, you know, I, I think it, that's the first question I asked you about your pop-up, right? How did you fill that? How did you, how did you sell it out? And you said you'd already produced, you'd already done that before, right? Like you pull together all the people and you figure out how to make it fly, how to, you know, get the people in the room that you need to, how to get the money you need to, how to fill the seats. Um, really, we're talking about marketing, right? Like, how do you raise awareness? How do you bring people in? Um, yep. And you said that that was instrumental in, you know, those were skills you had. You just applied them to a new industry, um, but you didn't have to, you didn't have the pressure of a brick and mortar restaurant right off the bat. You got to grow that slowly. And again, you know, uh, you know, mitigate your risk. Um, in doing that, what else, what other skills did you learn through that, you know, that, that taught you everything you were going to need to know uh, as an operator? Well, to back it up a little bit, too, I, I have to admit that um, when we started in Nashville, it was very easy to be noisy because there was really nothing going on. And that has changed dramatically, even in the last 12 months. Yeah. You have to yell a lot louder to be heard now in Nashville. Didn't used to be like that. There was a small group of us that were doing it, you know? So it was very easy to be heard. Um, so I think the skills, first of all, I worked in advertising. So I, I understood the difference between marketing and advertising. And as it was kind of described to me early in my um, career in that part of the industry was advertising is a silver bullet and marketing is a shotgun. And so, you know, it, it was obvious that in the first few years, you're just able to um, operate on passion and personality, right? And you're just still running on that, that juice, that, that like the honeymoon phase. Not to say that things don't happen and you don't get crushed on a daily basis and feel like Sisyphus <laughs> and all that, but you're still kind of on the high reality hasn't really set in yet, you know? Yeah. You may still be running from the numbers a little. You may still be convincing yourself that you could do an extra million, out, you know, this and that. But it's not really until reality hits that you start to see, okay, I'm going to have to be deliberate, not reactionary, about how I tell people about this company. And so for the first two to three years, I mean... Let's go back to the very first pop-up that I had. Yeah. So Eric had sent this tweet. Then Eric got asked to do a little one-page article for Food & Wine magazine. What are your top five favorite dishes in Nashville? He made my ramen one of them. So the day before I served my first bowl to the public, Food & Wine was at my house shooting a bowl of ramen. Yeah. I mean, that is that is not normal, okay? Not normal. That was just kismet. And I also very distinctly remember a moment, and I actually took a screenshot and saved it. Another chef that was really um, instrumental in helping me along the way, his name's Tyler Brown. He's an incredible chef here in Nashville. He used to run the Hermitage, and now he's got a big like Blackberry Mountain style project going on in Franklin. But 
he sent me a text the day after my first pop-up and he said, congratulations, hold on to this moment. You're going to need it. <laughs> Meaning? That passion, that that feeling that everything is right, that that emotion that it's all come together. I did it. Hooray. You know? Yep. And that hold on to that emotion because you're going to have to find it again, right? It will go away and it will come back and it will go away. And so, you know, a lot of people um, ask me, why did I name the company Otaku? And it's a name that has had a lot of different meanings in Japanese. Um, its literal meaning is at home. Um, and it came to be a derogatory term to mean like people that do nothing but stay home and play video games. And like super, super geeks, like, you. oh, he's otaku. You don't want to be friends with him. And then this in entire global culture exploded around this word, anime, manga, cosplay, Comic-Con, the list goes on and on. Actually, otaku culture is the fastest growing subculture in the world. And then I read somewhere that it meant obsessed and I really connected to that. Yeah. So they're also in the beginning of my real like commitment to marketing, I was really grappling with imposter syndrome in a lot of different ways. Um, the first way being called chef, huge imposter syndrome. Yes, these are my recipes. Yes, I run a restaurant. I don't consider myself a chef. <laughs> I just don't. And I, and I called myself that and I dressed for the part for about five years. And then I finally was like, why am I doing this? <laughs> this is stupid. And I have an incredibly talented team of chefs that work for me. And I bring a lot of chefs in to work with me from other parts of the country and the world because I love working with chefs. But that imposter syndrome was the first part of realizing what the company really was. The second part was being honest with the fact that I am not a traditional otaku. I don't watch anime. I'm not into manga. I can't, I don't, I can't obsessively name all of characters and things like that. So the people that follow this culture, it, I had a real like very serious aha moment when someone asked me this question in an interview and I realized it's not about me. This company is not about me anymore. It was in the beginning and it served me and it gave me a purpose, but now it's about everybody else. Yeah. So when I made that transition, all of the marketing started to click. Like, this is it. This is about happiness. This is about other people's happiness. Yeah, I want I wanna I wanna talk about that. I wanna circle back to that in just a second because this is really, really, really important. Um, but I wanna jump I want to get you into your brick and mortar restaurants and I want to understand um, how that jump happened from pop to yeah. a brick and mortar. And now you've expanded to multiple locations. So I want to understand that jump and then that growth. Um, and then I want to come back and I really want to talk about this idea of, of me versus them, you know, and, and, yeah. and how, and how that shift happened. Yeah. So we, I said to my husband, I'm like, I think we're ready. I think we should do this. I think we're going to miss our moment if we don't. This city is on is going to explode. And so we found a unit that had, you know, was in a kind of an emerging neighborhood called the Gulch. And it was a, a little wine bar that didn't make it. And so we committed to it and we went for it. And um, we were lucky that we were able to finance it ourselves. And so we didn't have to deal with 
investors and all of that. Not everybody can do that. So um, that, but, but listen, that wasn't easy either. Like it's a lot of money costs us $640,000 to build our first restaurant, you know? Yeah. Um, but I had found a chef that I trusted and that I wanted to, you know, he was young and we built this together in the beginning. The first brick and mortar we opened on December 16th of 2015. And um, it was bananas. It was one of those like, oh God, we have to close for a couple of days simply to catch our breath because, <laughs> and then like, oh my God, thank God we didn't give up the commissary because we just built a restaurant that's not even capable of making the amount of food that we're selling. Oh my God. And like, it was like that yeah. every day. You know, just keep the fucking wheels on this thing. Yeah. And so it was, um, I was given a gift. You know, this restaurant was really a gift and the city embraced it so wonderfully. And we have had our ups and downs, but I mean, it's a, it's a, let's see, 17, 1800 square foot restaurant with 88 seats because half of it is on a fully covered patio. So already rent is at three, 4%. So that was a big piece of the secret of the success is that we didn't come into it with high rent. Yep. We also, we helped make the neighborhood. So the landlord was, he was, he was smart. Like he gave us a shot, you know, he was trying to get the Apple store to come in and he gave us a shot. So these are all the kinds of things that kind of have to come together. You know, it, it has to, be a perfect storm, I think. And and there are other levers that you can see that are the secret to success. But for us, it was, holy shit, we, we got to figure this out fast. And um, from there, I decided that I had to hire like a, some firepower. And so I had uh, my director of operations, Todd, is born and raised in New York and worked in hospitality in New York for 25 years before he came to work for us. And he's been with us for five years. So he's been with me through almost this entire journey. And and we've opened and closed restaurants together too. We have other concepts that failed. But now we are fully focused on Taku Ramen. So I think my age allowed me to say, yeah, that was a failure. Get up, let's go, what's next? Yeah. Like I wasn't so wrapped up or terrified of failure. I had already failed yeah. in many, many other ways. And I had succeeded in many, many other ways. So I had I had more gumption, I think, than I would have had if I had done this when I was 25. Yeah, yeah. So then, so the restaurant's only five years old. When did you uh, expand the first time? So about two years, three years in, um, I, I'm looking at these numbers and I'm like, this is really rough having a whole commissary for one restaurant. Yeah. Like we got to figure out how to have some more income. And so I was like, what if we did ramen to go? I know that's like verboten. Nobody should do that. Everybody thinks it's like, no. And so I called up my, uh, my, my friend who, who wasn't really like a friend friend at the time. He was more like someone I really looked up to and a mentor, Ivan Orkin, who is kind of the American godfather of ramen. And for as kind and wonderful as Ivan is, he is also terrifying. <laughs> um, and I called him and I said, Ivan, what do you think about ramen to go? 
and he said, and he's, uh, he famously curses like a sailor, which is one of the things that endears me to him greatly. And he said, it's my fucking job to sell Roman. And I was like, okay, thank you. And he gave me permission in that moment. I was like, okay, we're going to figure it out. We're going to figure out how to serve really, really, really good ramen to go. And I looked at my husband and I said, can you create a to-go window out of the front door of the commissary? So I turned the commissary into a unit. Cool. And I turned it into a to-go unit on the second floor of a weird administrative hospital mini mall. (laughs) The morgue. (laughs) Yep, the morgue. Yeah, so that was um, that was a great move. I mean, we do a million a year out of that little window. Okay. And so that's how we really started to prove that um, ramen could get out into other places and other neighborhoods. And then our next otaku ramen unit, I, I, I messed up after that. And um, I got stars in my eyes. And I thought I was invincible. And I went and opened another concept. And, um, and that pretty much sucked up three and a half years of my life and all my money. If I had kept my eye on the ball, we'd be talking about six or seven units right now for Otaku Ramen. So for those of you out there, one piece of my advice is, uh, no, no new puppies, as my husband says. (laughs) Um, (laughs) so we sold the restaurant that wasn't performing in the middle of, uh, COVID an absolute miracle and the hardest deal I've ever had to pull off in my life. And then about May of last year, I had COVID in March of last year. And um, it took me down for about six weeks. And when I came out of the fog um, and was able to like do more than lay in bed and be angry at the world, I looked at my husband, I was like, we got to come up with a strategy. Is our strategy going to be to try not to lose money or is our strategy going to be to make money? And so we just started going through the emotions of it all. Okay, what's going to happen? What's the worst case scenario? Um, Are people going to be stuck at home? Is it going to be winter? Are they going to want ramen? Yep, they are. Okay, so what if we pull off two full scale uh, pop-ups in different neighborhoods for six months. We go, we find a restaurant, maybe they're not performing, maybe they need a break and they're exhausted. We take over their lease for six months and we run full-scale pop-ups out of these restaurants. That was the idea. Okay. The idea became a new unit. And so we found a unit that unfortunately for the owners was brand new and they never got out of the gate. And so it never opened. And it was a, a little franchise, like, you know, a, I think it was... A, a thousand square feet, but it was fully built. We pulled the plastic off of it and um, we opened in October. So that became um, our second full to go unit. And um, now we're looking at two more brick and mortar units. Uh, In every crisis, there is opportunity. So um, I I don't want to dwell on the pandemic, but like I said earlier, it's impossible to ignore because it's uh, decimated our industry in a way that I don't think it has touched a lot of other industries. As bad as it has been, I think it has been absolutely horrific. Yeah. Um, it's been a, it's been very hard to watch. It's been very hard to be a part of. So then, so talk to me then about the the pandemic. What did you guys? A lot was said about the pivot. I want to know uh, what you did, how you pivoted, or or not. And then I want to talk about what you learned through all of that, um, and, and what you're bringing with you. And that's really the piece I'm interested in. Um, what are the things you discovered through the pandemic that you go, oh, this is going to stick with us. This is actually a better force in the future. Um, 
I've been talking about that ad nauseum, but I want to understand where you're at with that and, and how you've looked at that. So before the pandemic, Nashville was growing at a breakneck pace, it, on an unsustainable pace, um, which, as you know, transfers into the labor market, which means that um, it is extremely difficult to keep staff. And that creates a lot of negative energy. And then that can very, very quickly turn into us against them, right? And yeah. so um, there was a little bit of that going around my company. And COVID gave us a chance to change that. And it gave me the strength to focus on who we are and who we are going to be and to put my foot down on that and to own it and to not have to compromise on that anymore. So it was a culture reset for the company. And it took a lot of really difficult navigating, you know, um, totally understandable fear of working, right? Uh, and, but also supporting them mentally, health-wise, all of those things in, that we didn't really, ha we talked about doing before, but it wasn't as necessary as it became through this. Um, but there was no pivot for us because uh, we already had a flush to go system. I mean, in the beginning of March, we had an entire palette of our custom packaging arrive um, and that sustained us through the pandemic. So Great. we just, things aligned for us. And, um, you know, I, I have so much discomfort and fear for my industry um, and all the things that we face over the next couple of years from minimum wage to um, the transition that is inevitably going to happen. But I think that if you choose to look at these times as times that define you and that help to rebuild in some way, then we just we just stayed on the positive note. We just stayed on the growth note, even if it wasn't actual growth. It was always a growth mindset. And, and to give people jobs and a growth mindset and a happy place to be in the middle of all this bullshit is what kept us going. This is uh, as good a time as any to hook back into the thing that you started talking about, which is that taking the focus off of me and putting it onto uh, customers, uh, our customers. And talk about that shift um, when you made it not about you anymore and you made it about them. Well, when I started, I thought I was going to build this little Kodawari ramen shop. Kodawari means craft, you know, so it's like the menu's changing seasonally and all of this. But when you're serving 750 bowls a day, that doesn't happen. So it became clear that we were on our way to becoming a QSR and we were going to be honest about that and not have any shame over that or feel that we aren't chefy enough or creative enough. I had a moment where I think someone had, um, and this happens to me a lot, um, lashed out at me online about uh, appropriation and that I was appropriating. And I was like, okay. Well, what if we're American ramen? What if we're not Japanese ramen? So then I decided that I was going to change the log line of the company to being a traditional American ramen shop. And that was a real pivotal moment for us. It was an ownership. It was a, a stake, like I'm dropping my stake. This is it. This is who we are. I'm making no apologies. You want to know what that means? Ask me, I'll tell you, you know, but owning being an American ramen shop. And I felt that that was very unique. And actually it's amazing because since we've done that, we see people using that term now. So it's, 
I think it's exciting. You know, we we are uh, our own country and we have our own perspective and our own palate, but it's traditional because we we stay true to the traditions of ramen and what it is and how it's made. But it's American because we live here. Yeah. And so that was a huge pivotal moment for us. And it really started to um, drive me to realize that although I had worked in advertising and although I had I could sell ice to an Eskimo and I had good instincts, I actually didn't really know the t- basic tenets of marketing. Didn't know it. Had never taken a marketing class. Had never really had, because I've worked for myself since I was 22 years old. So I never had anyone teach me any of this. Well, the great thing was that if the pandemic has been nothing, it has been an incredible opportunity to learn anything you want online, anything. Yeah. So I dove in and I decided to go back to the basics and learn the basics of marketing, the basic tenets. And that really helped me to get on solid ground and to um, commit 6% a year to a marketing budget to make a marketing budget, to say, okay, what are we gonna do with this money? And how are we gonna allocate this money? And to start to um, dive very deep into understanding, um, okay, what kind of return can I get from um, Facebook ads? What kind of return can I get? And, And looking at it as a piece of the business, not just, oh my God, sales are down. What are we gonna do? Let's do something. I'm, I'm never going back to reactionary marketing. Ever. There's a reason I called this show Restaurant Strategy, and it's because after two decades in the industry and six years uh, of, of consulting for, uh, for uh, restaurants, uh, working with chefs and operators, I was finding myself having the same conversations over and over and over again. And I felt like what they lacked, um, I still feel what most independent restaurants lack is a strategy a plan for for what they're going to do. And and I always break it down. So you you talked about going back to basics. It's something that that is very near and dear uh, to my heart is that um, that we do return to those basics, you know, and, uh, you know, who, who, who's your product for? What problem do they have that you can solve? How are you uniquely positioned to solve that problem? You know, how can you attract them, right? That who's your persona? Who's your, you know, it's define your customer. What is your strategy? Like I had to make a decision to say, okay, what is my actual company strategy? Yeah. Is it, and it, it's market domination. That's my strategy. But in that, there are pieces to it. And I always, when I sit down with restaurant owners and they say, yeah, yeah no, 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 we, we know all that. We know all that. And I said, okay. So attraction, retention, evangelism. Those are three key pieces. And you're never going to find that in any marketing textbook. This is what I like to talk about. I say, there are 10 actions you're going to do to accomplish attraction, to attract an audience that have nothing to do with the 10 actions you're going to do to retain that audience, uh, to get them to come back, to uh, to become loyal, to you know, to become regulars. And those actions are different than what you need to do um, to promote evangelism. How do you get people to go out and talk about you, to tweet about you, to post a photo about you, to wear your hat, your shirt, your whatever? Those are three yeah. different, you know, three distinct channels, three distinct buckets. And, um, you know, we were talking uh, before the call, right? Like we were saying, you know, marketing, 
uh, we were joking around, marketing is not reserved for the big companies, right? Mm -hmm. They do it, but that doesn't mean that we can't do it as independent uh, restaurant owners. And um, and all it is, it's nothing, nothing fancy, nothing special, except having a plan, putting a plan in place, understanding how do we get, uh, how do we get on people's radar? How do we become known to people? Then you fill in the blanks. We do eight these eight things. We spend X number of dollars. We've allocated this much money to accomplishing those tasks. Great. Done. You pass that off. You delegate. Go execute that. How are we retaining customers? Okay, part of that is the experience, is the food, right? Mm-hmm. Service has got to be great. Food's got to be delicious. Great. That's part of the plan. But then are you inviting people back? Or are you giving them, you know, it's, <laughs> right? I mean, you know this. You ran your own business. Just ask. People will say yes. Are, That's are, right. Are you asking people? Are you giving them an opportunity yeah. to return to you? And I, I think it's not. I think it's not stated enough. So, you know, coming at that um, in mind, I, I've been saying the last several weeks that I hope on the backside of this pandemic um, that it becomes less about us and more about them. Uh, that we put the guest back at the center of this. That we um, we come with this understanding of we are providing something crucial for. Uh, for the customer, and uh, and in turn, um, they are going to pay our bills. Um, but they're not going to pay our bills because they like us, because we post cool photos, because they're not going to pay our bills for any other reason except that we serve them in some way, that we provide them with something that they can't get anywhere else. And it's just as simple as that. I agree. I mean, there are so many tools out there right now that can assist in in this process, and that's for me been the really really fun part. I mean. Danny, who works with me um, every day in marketing here for the company, I mean, we constantly are looking at new technologies. Like I had a moment where I was like, okay, what is this text me thing that all these celebrities are doing? And so we onboarded to community and said, can we get this to work for us? This is amazing. Like this would be so cool if we could have like a one-way conversation with our, with our, you know, people that are our evangelists. And like, so it's, it, it's all about like, first you have to understand who you are, Yep. what you want right? And then you've got to go out there and you've got to look for what's out there that can help you amplify your message and choose the ways that you're going to amplify your message. And it, there, there are so many incredible tools. I mean, SMS marketing is about to be on the come, big, big, big. I think yeah. that's going to be the next big move in our industry. And I mean, just, and I apologize, as we've been on this call, I've gotten three SMS texts from different brands. <laughs> yeah, right? it's... It's a, and, it's a big, it, 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 there are big, there are yeah. tools, you know, the, the tools will always keep changing. What won't change is your identity, your audience, who they are, how you serve them, what they need, how you fill that need. The tools are going to keep changing, 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 right? Five years ago, it was Instagram. Then it was Snapchat. Then it was TikTok. Now, all of a sudden, it's Clubhouse. It, it will keep changing. There are different tools uh, for you to, um, for you to connect. But, uh, but what won't change are those fundamentals, right? Understanding who you are. And also, it, again, you it, no matter if you are a chef and you are running um, a, a seasonal restaurant and you are the masthead of the company and all of that, you got to remember it's not about you. Yeah. It's not about you. And if you make it about you, that's where things get really difficult. And it, it's, it's not that you can't have a personal brand and you can't, you know, cook on television and do all of those things and be a celebrity chef or whatever, but... I think now more than ever, it is completely apparent that if you are building a business that is about you, it is going to be much harder to succeed. Yeah. 
that is where I would like to leave this. I am so uh, respectful of your time, and I could do this for another hour, um, uh, but I, I, I don't want to take up too much uh, more of your time. Before I let you go, um, tell us uh, where can listeners uh, go to learn more about you uh, and the delicious ramen you serve and your cookbook. We didn't even talk about that, but um, uh, you couldn't find the cookbook uh, that you needed when you started, so you created the cookbook um, to help yep. people. Where can people go to learn all about all that stuff? So the Ramen Otaku Cookbook is available on Amazon. Hopefully it's in your local uh, bookstore as well. Call them first, please, and check. Um, But we're the only ramen shop that I know in the world that has ever published our recipes. So these are the recipes that we use in the restaurant. And um, you can find me on Instagram, um, Ms. Sarah Gavigan, otherwise known as MSG. Those are my actual (laughs) initials. Um, and I've started cooking a lot online. Uh, COVID's brought me back to my kitchen. So um, lots of fun stuff going on there and always talking about ramen and making ramen. So join me. Excellent. And we will include all those links in the show notes. Uh, I so appreciate you carving out the time uh, to chat with me today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. My pleasure. That's it for this week. I hope you got a lot out of this interview. Remember that all of the links are in the show notes. If you like the show, if you find value from the things I talk about, then here are the three ways you can pay it forward. Number one, spread the word about this podcast. Forward this episode to three people who you think might get something out of it. Number two, leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It simply helps boost us up in the rankings. It really does help. And number three, support us on Patreon. $5 gives you access to our new private podcast. It's called The Daily Special. The community is growing. I hope I see many of you over there. Thank you for being here. Stay creative, and I will see you next week.